Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Surface. My name is Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I'm very interested in talking to interesting people who are performers. They're everything from CEOs to coaches to athletes to musicians to actors, anyone who considers himself to be a performer and is an expert at their craft. So what we will do is ask questions to dive deep and dig deep into their mindset, into their journey, into their story, what makes them unique, what makes them special, so that hopefully it can help you as you continue on your journey for development and as you go beyond the surface with yourself as well. I'm really excited to have Coach Raphael Chilius, who is the associate head coach at University of Washington with their men's basketball team, come on the Beyond the Surface podcast today. Coach Chills has an amazing journey and really talks about his hardships and the adversity that he faced growing up and how he used those experiences to develop the underdog mindset that he has today. He also is big on work ethic and never being complacent and education. And he instills a lot of those values in the kids that he mentors and coaches today. And I think you'll really enjoy some of the phrases that he uses to help shape his life and help guide his life, in addition to some of the stories that he was willing to share with me. So I'm really happy to introduce Coach Raphael Chilius to you as we go beyond the surface. I'm here with Coach Chills, and uh, Coach, I'd love to just have you share your story, your upbringing, your journey, and uh, just give us a sense of what it was like to be you as a youngster and, and your surroundings and your environment and and how you became who you are today. Uh, th- thanks for having me, Brian. The, um, I guess, it, you know, from day one, I think that encapsulates who I am now and who I was growing up is sort of born into a situation where it had to be like an underdog mentality. Um, you know, I grew up in a uh, sort of suburban hood just outside of the Washington, D.C., Silver Spring area. And I grew up in a household where it was my mother, my grandmother, two sisters, and one boy. And I was the youngest. And so, A, I learned to talk really fast to get my words in around all the ladies uh, in my house. And then, B, um, I learned very quickly outside of your house, it's a tough world when people uh, see one guy in a house full of women because they have this ideas you may be quote-unquote soft mm-hmm. so uh from the very beginning i had to uh really develop some tough leather skin outside of my house to learn how to compete in just everything i, I did um, you say talk fast uh that just sort of i when i've gotten to know you over the past year and you are a fast talker you definitely have the gift of gab right and <laughs> so you think that is because you're around women uh growing up or what do you attribute that to I think it's a combination of being that and being the youngest, you know, and, you know, obviously you're in your house and a lot of women start talking and you're the youngest. Uh, your words may not be heard unless you get them in quick and first. Um, so I learned quickly that I couldn't get them in first, but I learned was my turn to talk to get them in quickly. Um, and then the same sort of way, I was always the group I grew up around with. I was the youngest in my group of friends. And so I learned to really learn how to think quickly, first of all, so you could talk quickly. Mm. And that's sort of my upbringing. It got me to the point where I talk pretty fast. And you, you just hit on like three different things that I'm going to dive into a little bit. So I heard underdog right off the bat. You, you 
appreciated being an underdog. And then you talked about toughness and not being soft. And then the third thing that I'm hearing is I need to be able to think quickly uh, so that I can talk quickly. And then like the next step that I'm hearing in my head is, and then I need to be able to act quickly. And, and you're, you're the associate head coach at University of Washington with their men's basketball program. And I would imagine one of the things that you are trying to get your players to constantly do is to think quickly, talk quickly, but most importantly, especially in a game like basketball where it's not a soccer field or a football field, you need to act quickly because there's not a whole lot of space. Absolutely. And, you know, you know, I do a lot of clinics around the country talking about read and react offense, you know, where a lot of spacing. And you have to be able to, especially in, in, in college basketball, you know, from high school, it's almost like a thud, 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 the speed of the game. You know, and when you get to college, that's how fast the game goes. And so you have to put your uh, players in a position where um, they're under pressure at practice to learn and to think and react quickly. And it's 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 tricky, especially when you have young teams, because um, some guys don't process as quickly as others. So you have to put them in positions where they have to think the least amount as quickly as they can in the game. And that's the trick to get your to me to get your athletes to perform well under pressure is that they can recognize something quickly, but really in a game that is synthesized so quickly from practice that they can react to what they see in the game quicker without slowing themselves down to really have to think and, and make a bad decision because they move too slow. You know, I'm, I'm thinking as you're talking, and I know you've been really fortunate to be around a lot of guys who have gone on to the next level and played in the NBA. And... I'm very fortunate that I get to see the high school level at an elite level, uh, the college level at an elite level, and then the NBA level where, I mean, everyone's elite. Um, but when I think about the difference between college and NBA, which a lot of people struggle with because they don't understand why a great college player can't always transition and be great in the NBA. Um, but if you watch a lot of college basketball, and a lot of NBA basketball, guys, actually, and I had never thought about this, college basketball, you need to be able to think quicker in a lot of ways than the NBA because there's more space in the NBA. There's not press. There's, there's not pressure. It's not this 40 minutes. It's, it's more, it's different. Um, and in some ways you have more space to create in the NBA than you do in college basketball. It's more jumbled together. Um, can you talk about that? Am I crazy to think that way? No, you're not crazy to think that way. In fact, I would say college is tougher for a lot of players for the simple fact that um, illegal defense in the NBA, when you talk about that spacing, um, you can get a lot of help in college basketball. And in the NBA, they all know, every player knows, every team knows, all the action the other teams are running is a bunch of fluff. And at the end of the play, they get into their best player in isolation, and can you stop him? In college, it's more of a team game where your systems, uh, even if you have a great player, your system is going to allow other guys who may not be the quote-unquote man to be able to score because of your system and being able to read and understand what the defense is doing. Um, so in that way, the NBA, they're all the same. You know, you look at one playbook, another playbook. Golden State plays a little different than, than most people, um, but it's all the same. They're going to run this action, that action to get LeBron James or Kobe Bryant or this person the ball at this spot, and then can you stop Right. College is a little bit different. I want to go back a little bit because I don't want to minimize your journey. And I think we could talk X's and O's and basketball all day. But I want to go back uh, and just to your upbringing. As I said, you use that word toughness. 
Um, and that being sort of something you realize, like I may be from a family of women. Uh, can you talk about those women, uh, and how tough they were? And then also how that impacted you once you left the house. Absolutely. Well, well, first and foremost, my, my great, my grandmother, the matriarch of our household, you know, see, this is what we did back in those days. We had the, um, unfortunate where your home address depended on where you went to school. And so we lived in an apartment, we actually had an apartment in a different neighborhood that we lived in on the weekends with my mom and my sisters and I. But during the week, we lived with my grandmother who lived just close enough to, in Montgomery County, to really good school. And so we did that so we could live with her and go to good schools. Um, and is that your mom? Grandma, is that your mom's desire? Mom, yep, yeah, my mom's desire because my mom, um, you know, she, she didn't go to college, but she wanted us all to go to college. And Going back to my neighborhood, my sister was the first person in my neighborhood to ever go to college, first wow. of all. And so that's the type of mentalities we had. So, um, But my grandmother was really impressive to us because the toughness she showed me was the ability to get up and work hard every day. You know, she grew up as the granddaughter of someone on a sharecropper's farm. Mm. She went to uh, third grade, you know. Uh, she really couldn't read very well until I made it to middle school. And what I did as a sixth grader... Um, so I remember elementary school, like, you know, when you don't go to school, your parent has to write a note. You know, I would write the note and my grandmother signed it because she couldn't really write a note. Wow. Um, so, but when I was in sixth grade, I, I convinced her to use what little bit of money we had to get uh, the Washington Post. And I said, Grandma, we're going to get the Washington Post and every day I'm going to sit with you and we're going to read the Washington Post together until you can read. And by the time I was in 12th grade, my grandmother was unbelievable. Wait, wait, time um, out, time out, time out. I you're a sixth grader. How do you have that drive or determination or desire to help uh, your grandma? Like, where do you think that comes from? Can you do you remember that like conversationally? Do you remember it vividly? Yeah, well, what I remember vividly is that when I figured out that my grandmother wasn't a great reader, um, you know, and one of the notes she wrote for me to go on a field trip, it was just <laughs> it was it was a little mess besides her signature, you know. Um, and so from that point on, she'd given us so much that I said, man, I'm going to help my grandmother out, you know? Um, so it started with her and then my mother being a single, single mother, when we saw her get up every single day, rain, snow, whatever the weather was, if she went to bed at 3am, she got moved to work every single day. I don't remember my mother missing very many days of work. And so that just what I learned observationally, um, was this is what you do. You know, and to me, that was toughness. That was, and my mother and my grandmother never complained about, uh, we don't have this, we don't have that. You know, woe is me. You know, it was all about, no, nope, we're going to work through this. And I remember one thing, everyone in my neighborhood could tell you to this day, we didn't have much, but my grandmother, our front door was always unlocked. And if we had a little bit, it didn't matter. If someone had no place to stay, they had nothing to eat, I'd routinely wake up and find strangers sleeping on my sofa because my grandmother took care of everyone. And that was just the mentality. We grew up to take care of people and don't complain about your situation. The there, There's so much meat there that's that's just incredible. Um, how do you define toughness? Because you sort of had the anecdote of your mother uh, going to work every day regardless of the environment or the weather. Uh, how, give me a definition of toughness as you see it. Well, for me, it, it changed over my life because, when, I, like I said, my dynamics in my house. And then, you know, you live in the hood. You go out on the street every day. You know, I literally had to fight for my manhood fists, you know, growing up, you know, and, and that's where I learned, oh, that's toughness, you know, taking somebody on with your fists. 
And as I got older, my grandmother and mother, before she, uh, the other part is that my mother died in a car accident when I was in eighth grade. Mm. So then it was my grandmother and my two sisters raising each other. And so but before my mother dies, like, you know, you can't solve everything with your hands. You are smart. My mom used to tell me, you're so smart. She said, you can outwit those guys who want to fight you with their hands and you can talk them into being your buddy or talk them into one out of, out of fighting you. Or you have to prove yourself. Don't prove yourself with your hands. Prove yourself with your mind. And from that point on, that's, that was sort of my mindset. Do you remember what, what age you were when, when that shift happened? Uh, I think that shift was like towards the end of my seventh grade. Um, because I remember as a sixth grader, in my middle school, you know, basically seventh and eighth graders made the basketball team. We had a good basketball team. And I remember our, our coach, uh, Coach Eisenacher. I'll never forget him. Um, as a sixth grader, if you're really good where I'm from, sixth grader, you might make the team. And I was the best player in our school, you know, as a sixth grader. And everyone knew it. And as a sixth grader, I didn't make the team because I got two C's. And I remember Coach Eisenacher coming to me and goes, you're better than that. You're a really good player, but you're not playing on my team so you get rid of those C's because you're better than that. And that all around the same time sort of happened to get me to the point where I was going to be, I made myself that no matter who I was in the classroom with, I was going to be the best student. And then unless someone put their hands on me first and had to defend myself, I was going to fight you with my mind, not my body. And, and then I just want to dive a little deeper into your mom passing because you had this shift occur in sixth, seventh grade where she had a great impact on you on uh, sort of uh, saying you're going to go to work. You're going to be tough, but you can out-tough people with your, with your brain rather than your fists. Uh, what's your reaction, though, as an eighth grader losing your mom who, who, is this, who has this massive impact on you? You didn't have anger, or did any of that come out when your mom passed? You know what? It's, it's one of those surreal uh, situations. I know you've, probably, I know you've read it, uh, Kubler-Ross, The Stages of Grief. You know, but for me, I sort of skipped it because... The moment, well, first of all, um, when we went to the hospital, you know, they made you come identify. And none of my family could bring themselves to go in and identify. So I volunteered. So I went in and identified her, you know. And to me, it was one of those surreal things. Like, man, she doesn't look like she's dead. Like, she had a cut on her chin. But, you know, she broke her neck and all that stuff. Um, so, A, that, that right away had a tremendous uh, impact. And then, B, from that moment when I saw that my sister's and my grandmother, and my aunt, and even my uncle, who's the toughest man I've ever met in my life, could not go in there and do that identification. I said, I got I to gotta step up. I got to be the man now. And so when I walked out of the room, I went from being the youngest person in the house to all of a sudden, even though my sisters were older, that I just sort of wrapped my arms around them and became the man of the house at that moment. And so basically, I didn't cry um, until the following year, New Year's. It's funny, yesterday's New Year's. It was my mother's birthday. I didn't cry until the following New Year's when it really dawned on me my mother was gone because I really jumped in and started doing what she would do. I started working and taking care of everyone. And that was just, that was just how, this how it went for me. So she left a, a, a huge legacy on you with those, those elements of I'm going to, I'm going to work and my door is going to be open and I'm going to just help people. Um, Absolutely. Tell, tell me about high school. What was high school like for you? Um, high school was, was, was interesting because my sister who's three years older than me, she was a really, really good basketball player, too. And she went to my high school, and she had a certain toughness about her, but still to this day, probably the smartest person I know. Um, and so when I walked into the high school, you know, I was a ninth grader. There's bully situations, but no one would mess with me because of my sister. It was really interesting. But at that point, I decided, man, 
you have to carve a path, even though you love your sister, not in spite of her, but it's different than your sister where people said he's not getting stuff because of her, you know, and she was really good at making sure that she gave me nothing in front of people to make sure I worked for everything. And so as a ninth grader, again, I was one of the best um, players in the high school. We had a very good high school basketball team. And so my freshman year, I sort of swung back between JV and varsity. And it was a good learning experience for me because the first time in my athletic career, because I played football also, but I, I started as started on JV as a football player. Um, but I had to learn to, when I was with the varsity guys, to, to, to learn a role and not be the man. And that was really good for me because at that point, I really learned about team. My head coach taught me about team and how teams are formulated, how your role as a point guard on a team, even though you can score, that a lot of times your your agenda is you treat it like you go into a buffet, that at the buffet, you feed the bigs first and the leader eats last. And that, that was a great impact on me. And that's still how I view things, even though here and a lot of the you know Isaiah Thomases and the big time NBA players that I've coached and Dion Waiters and those people that play point guard have also told me that you can get yours, but when it comes down to it, you need to learn to feed in order to be able to get yours. That's amazing. So, so you're going back and forth between varsity and JV and basketball. You're also playing football. Uh-huh. Where did sports even like come from? Because it sounds like your your older sister was a was a heck of a basketball player. Was she the one that put the ball in your hands, or was it somebody else? Like, where did the where did the sports come from? Yeah, she put the ball in my hands since I was four years old. And interesting, our dynamic is we're still to this day the best of friends in the world. When it came to sports, her and I would have it out. Uh, she still jokes about like when she was taller than me and bigger than me, and I was little. I'd get mad and frustrated when I throw rocks and sticks at her. Go home and like throw the ball at her, you know, and she'd never let off the gas pedal on me. When she could dominate me, she dominated me. And then we go play tennis, and she was better than me at tennis. But she always had a plan. She was like, you know, I watch tennis. You know, I think tennis is going to have to be a really good defensive player, you know, and you teach you to move your feet and have your mind react. Um, so she always had a plan that way. And then sports in my neighborhood was the way out. You know, I, I grew up around so many guys who were in my neighborhood on the street corner, who you hear these stories about how unbelievable players they were. They had the scholarship offer this place, that place, but they couldn't go because they couldn't get themselves out of the neighborhood, whether it was academically or the chase of the streets. And I have to take my hat off to some of those guys, those nefarious drug dealer guys, would never allow me to get involved with a gang or what they were doing. When they realized I was a good player in sports they wrapped their arms around me and yet kept me away from everything and said no you gotta be the one that makes it out of us and that's how it went for me do you still consider any of those people father figures and i like i'm just curious because you told the story of your your middle school coach and talking to you about knocking in c's it's clear that you've had female influences that have greatly impacted you but i'm curious about where those father figures came from and and what they look like and who they were yeah, at the end of the day, um, I didn't know my father until I was 26 years old. And then, you know, we had a off and on sort of relationship until he passed recently. Uh, we got close. So all those men in my neighborhood um, and around my neighborhood were like either super older brothers to me or like father figures in the sense where I learned also by not having a father in my house is what not to do. I could look at them and say, don't do that and watch them what they do. And they did a great job of saying, don't be me. Um, but 
the one I learned the most was from, from my, my uncle. Same sort of situation as my grandmother. He dropped out of high school at 14 to take care of his sisters. You know, um, I would hear stories about, you know, everyone in my neighborhood was scared of him, you know, because he was a tough man. He didn't start stuff, but he ended stuff. You know, one of the stories that my mother told me before she passed away was they had one of those old wood-burning stoves. My uncle would take care of that uh, when my grandmother was at work. And so one year he's putting wood in the stove and it opens up and he catches on fire. His chest is on fire. He calmly turns to his sisters and says, call 911 and just walks outside and lays in the snow and waits for the ambulance to come. And to this day, I mean, he has, you know, skin graft all over his chest. To this day, stuff like that. I remember driving in the car with him and I had curly hair. I have none now. I had curly hair when I was young. So he was always afraid of me looking like a, quote, a girl to people. And so I remember driving with him and I had my hair was curled up the front. He stopped his car, took his pocket knife out and cut my hair in his car. It was the most painful experience I've had. But it was just one of those guys. He was a man's man. And but what jumping ahead to now, but what's so impressive about him as life went on, he taught me how to be soft because he's the most gentle, tough man you'll ever learn. He cries at the drop of a hat. He tells you he loves you. All that stuff I didn't see when I was growing up. Um, but to go back, those guys in my neighborhood, I just remember Mar the guys named Marvin Dutton, um, his brother Junior Dutton, who passed away tragically in an accident. I mean, I could go on and on with the guys in my neighborhood who said. I was great at something, but I wasn't able to do it because I didn't take care of the classroom. And, I, and, and the Lord of the Streets kept me out here and I couldn't do it. But we're going to make sure that you know what not to do. I want to I want to just dive. I love the soft toughness dynamic is so prominent in your life. Um, you talked about not being soft in the beginning of our conversation today and sort of thinking of soft as being like a bad word. Right. But I'm hearing from you now. It's like my uncle actually taught me that it's okay to be soft uh, in some situations because here's this hard, tough guy with fire and, you know, jumping in the snow and just the epitome of toughness. But there's another lesson later in life where he shows you the ability to put an arm around someone. Uh, I'm just curious how that impacts your ability to coach today uh, where uh, – you know, I've been around a lot of coaches and I think a lot of the greats have that dynamic of toughness, but also understanding that there's also a time to put an arm around a guy. So I'm just curious how that's impacted you, that that word soft. Uh, can you just yeah. go into that word soft for me a little bit? Well, to me, it happens like, you know, I spent a lot of time alone growing up too, being the only boy. And so I became a unbelievable because of safety wise and just I became an unbelievable people watcher. You know, I get on the metro in D.C., I get on the subway in DC and I just watch people, you know. And I, I, I and I, one thing I learned was, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And caring a lot of times is being able to know when someone else is down and, and they need you to go put your arm around them. And then when I became a coach, what I my whole philosophy to this day is, when you look at a picture of me and a player walking away, a silhouette, you're gonna see an arm around their shoulder and a foot in their butt. You know, because the foot in the butt is just a symbolism of I'm going to coach you hard when you need to be coached hard. But at the same time, you're going to know how much I care in that process because my arm is going to be around your shoulder the whole way, giving the things that you don't even know you need. I have to give those to you because everyone, including me, is that little boy who's out there on his own. Um, my mother passed away. Um, you need to know that someone cares about you. And as a player, players need that. The toughest player in the world at the same time knows that 
deep down inside, they need at least one person to say, I believe in you, I have hope in you, and I care about you. And if you don't coach with that mentality in your brain, you can't get through to your guys. Especially this generation. There's a generation of people, fatherless kids, who look at men as the enemy deep down inside, where you have to teach them that, no, I'm going to give you what you need in terms of accountability, but at the same time, you're going to know there's a lot of, there's a great deal of empathy in my heart for you as a person. I want to, I want to hit on one last thing, and then I want to transition from high school to college and get that story. You grew up in a tough environment, like, uh, whether it is gangs, drugs, uh, physical, you know, assaults, like, uh, you saw some things and then you combine that with dad's not in, in the picture. Mom passes at a very young age. Uh, grandma is illiterate for a lot of your life. Um, uncle's a tough dude, you know, being tough with you. We, a lot of people would be in that situation and, and I would say would be a victim of the environment. And we could understand that they'd be a victim of that environment. And I even hear you talking about the guys on the street and you could sort of uh, empathize with them or sympathize with them because that was a product of their environment. Why do you think that well, – let me ask this. How do you look at your upbringing and your environment today? Um, how do you reflect on it? Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts on it? Well – First of all, I just know my mother would not allow me to feel sorry for myself or to make an excuse for myself. Our, my whole deal is when something doesn't go your way, you need to find a reason, not an excuse. Mm-hmm. It's a fine line between the two. But when you find the reason, you can attack the reason. When you make excuses, you can't fight, you know, first of all. And then um, my other goal was when I got to about my junior, senior year of high school, I thought to myself, I said, you know what? This is how I need to look at life. I love my neighborhood, but I want to come back on my terms, not because I have to come back. You know, I want to come back because I'm coming back to take care of people or to give people hope or to bring people some things they don't have in their life. I'm not going to be the guy who said, man, I could have, would have, should have. My responsibility is much was given to me from these people. So there's much required of me. I got to make it. And I just had that internal thing that no matter what happens, I'm not going to be an excuse maker. I'm going to find reasons and try to attack those reasons. It almost sounds like obligation. Like I'm obligated because I have some athletic gifts to not get in trouble. I'm obligated because I've got this mind that can do some things to do well in school. I'm obligated to uh, go far so that I can come back. Uh, And I think obligation is like a massive word that we often run away from. But as you said, I think you sort of ran toward it rather than using that obligation as an excuse to not do something. And I think you hear from a lot of people like, well, it was just an obligation. It wasn't something that I really cared about or it wasn't impactful or it didn't really have purpose to me. Well, no, an obligation can be a pretty powerful thing and, and can be a good thing sometimes. So really, really powerful stuff. Tell me about I high school. I think it is. Go ahead. I think, I think so many people spend their whole life trying to make it to the quote unquote ceiling. And sometimes you got to understand in order to be at the ceiling, you got to be someone's floor. Mm-hmm. You got to be able to support their feet. And someone supported my feet when I needed that. And a lot of people did that. So my whole philosophy is while I'm at this 30,000 foot view of the world and you're trying to make it to the top, you have to learn to be someone's floor. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's just, that's 
beyond the surface. Like that's deep, man. Cause it's true. It's where our feet are. Our feet are on the floor. Like, you know, what are you doing with that floor before you can reach for the ceiling? And I, I think we're all susceptible to being dreamers and, and there's nothing wrong with being a dreamer and you should be a dreamer and you should be, right. believe you can achieve whatever it is you want. I believe in all that stuff, but I think the thing that we often miss in the conversations we have with, with humans is what's your floor and who's your floor exactly. and, and how do you make sure that your foundation is solid? It's like you're building a house. You got to go brick by brick before, you know, you can't just put a roof on and expect it to now be a house. Like, no, you need to build a foundation. So tell me about your foundation and t- t- tell me about high school. You're playing basketball, you're playing football. Um, when does college start coming in the picture? What's your high school career like? Um, well, by my sophomore year, it was pretty clear that in my mind, a lot of people mind around me, I was going to play college basketball or football, I was a pretty decent free safety. And I was getting recruited pretty heavy football-wise, too. You know, but I was skinny. In fact, going into high school, I was only like five foot six. Um, five foot six, six probably 130 pound uh, guard. And then my freshman year of high school, I grew to like five nine, five ten, And I just kept growing. But um, what happened was uh, I had a really good high school career in terms of football and basketball. And then towards the end of high school, um, I just couldn't decide what I wanted to do in college, football or basketball. And that was the first time anyone put my mind about prep schools. You know, man, and you're skinny. And I thought, man, I'm skinny. If I want to play football, if I decide I want to play football, I need to go somewhere, put some meat on me, go and try to get some college credit also. Um, So I chose to go to prep school for a year um, after high school because I couldn't decide whether I wanted to go play basketball or football or both. And the, the funny thing about it, I went to prep school, still couldn't decide in the prep school. So one of the reasons outside of some of the schools that recruited me um, for football and basketball, academically, they weren't where, uh, let's say, my sister and I wanted me to be academically. Because I understood my cousin was the volunteer coach for John Thompson back in Georgetown back in the day. And I remember being a little thing and going in his office and seeing a flat basketball. And I asked big, big coach... <laughs> Uh, why is that basketball flat? He said, because one day you're not going to be allowed to play basketball. And what's your life going to be after that? And that really, truly impacted me. And um, so when my sister was helping me make a decision on college, she said, um, this is not going to be a basketball or football decision. This is going to be a life decision. And that life decision means where are you going to school? What classroom are you sitting in every day? When you go to, when you choose your college, and I say to recruits now, when you choose your college, do you want your, at the end of your college career, and you go to try to get a job, do your resume is be in this big stack of resumes, or do you want to be in a little teeny stack of resumes because that's elite? Those are the elite students. Those are the kids that went to elite colleges and got elite academic experiences because you're gonna, the employer is going to pull a resume from that pile first before it goes over to the big pile. And so long story short, we chose Lafayette because we were going to attempt to play football and basketball there. But then I hurt my knee towards the end of my prep school in the spring. And so I went to college with my knee being, being sort of injured. And so I chose just basketball. And the Lafayette experience was unbelievable for me for a multitude of reasons. First of all, academically, I'll go on record. I don't think that you can find any schools better than Patriot League and Ivy League schools in terms of getting you a diverse education. Not just with the book, but what they expect you to learn about life and experiences they give you outside the classroom and the expectation with the workload they put on you as a student. There's no give or take. You know, you have to put out. I remember 
going to my first freshman seminar, and the professor says to me, the class, says to our class, goes, look to the left of you, look to the right of you. By the end of the first semester, there will be a lot of people who aren't in the school because they can't hack it academically. And I took that on as a challenge because also there were minorities were limited in view. And a lot of us there were athletes at that time. And I said, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be that guy. I don't care how hard it is, how late I have to stay up at night. I am going to get this thing done. And to this day, that's you know me, I'm not a sleeper. Because, you know, I learned there that while other guys are sleeping, I'm going to be up working. And when they have to be up working, that's when I'm going to get my sleep. So that comes, that from, that comes from mom? Does that come from mom? That came from mom and it came from, you know, going back to elementary school. Because of the neighborhood we went to and elementary school we went to, those people, you felt it very clearly from the, sometimes the principal on down to the teachers that they were looking at you that you can't make it. Mm. And I just remember, you know, back then they did the, what they call that, um, because of where you live, sometimes they just put you in remedial classes because of where you live, not because of the testing. And I remember they tried to do that with me as a as a first grader, just put me in a class with everyone else from my neighborhood. You know, I remember my mother going down to the school and said, that you're not doing that to my son. Look at his test scores. You're looking at our address. And to then, from then on, I said, I was going to prove people wrong. When I prove you wrong, it's in that classroom. When it comes to, like, you challenge my brain, I'm going to prove you wrong. And then, Chills, Lafayette, you know, we had a great first coach. Chills, one, one, thing that, one thing I just want to hammer home is, like, I have this philosophy that there's three types of reactions when things don't go our way. There are victims who say, why me? Like, why are you doing this to me? There are survivors that say it is what it is. Like, you know, it is what it is. I'm in the class. And there are drivers that say, no, 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 watch what I'm going to do. Here, yeah. watch. Your, your story aligns with this idea of, like, you know, I'm not going to find an excuse. I'm going to find a reason. Like, I, right. I am going to say, watch what I'm going to do. And I think that's just such a valuable message for all of us to take home because there are so many times in our life, you were talking about like the stages of grieving where we need to stay in, where we think we need to stay in victimhood. And I'm not right. minimizing victimhood. Like there is a time where you might want to say, why me? When your mom <laughs> passed away, we would have all understood if you had said, you know, gosh, I just need to like sit at home for a week and cry. That would have been completely fine, and, and I'm not minimizing that. But if you are spending 10 years in a room crying, then we have an issue. At some point, we need to move from victim to survivor, and the goal for all of us should really be from survivor to thriver. Uh, and, exactly. And that, your message really hits home with that concept that I, that I, I look at all the time. Well, you, your, your, your three-pronged thing you just said is exactly what I say to people. I said, do people in life who make things happen, watch things happen, or sit there and say, what the heck just happened? And I'm always going to be in that first group. I'm going to make something happen. I don't want to be the guy at the car accident you see on TV in the news who's coming on the street. Oh, I saw the whole thing. You know, I want to be the one in there helping the people get out of the car, you know, and making sure they make it to safety. And um, that's just that's just what I'm about. So you're at Lafayette. You're competing uh, athletically, but also academically. And, and tell me about how things are from a basketball standpoint. And also, we sort of skipped over your knee injury. And uh, I don't know how much you love football and having to give up football when you got to Lafayette. Can you just sort of uh, bring that home for us? Yeah, the knee injury was, uh, I think the knee injury outside of my mother and grandmother impacted my life more than anything. It was the first time I had to sit and watch, you know, and sit and watch a coach and see what a coach goes through. What us crazy athletes put on coaches' minds, you know, and the other part was just to overcome, you know, when, when I had my knee surgery, 
it was my freshman year at Lafayette. Um, they told me I wouldn't be able to jog for a year. You know, I turned my patella tendon. And I started, I got my hands on a book um, by Terry Orlick, you know, one of the first premier sports psychologists in pursuit of excellence. And I started reading that stuff and understanding and starting to feel for what your mind can do and your body can't do. And I remember my surgery was on October 28th. Um, and I was back jogging, full flash jogging, February 18th. Um, that's less than three months almost, let alone a full year. Now, I couldn't cut and go back inside and compete, but it was because I, I was determined that I was bigger than the knee injury and a lot of positive affirmations. And you might think it's weird. I, I would talk to my leg. I was like, you're fine. You're fine. I squeezed my quads. In. You're fine. We're strong. We're coming back. And we're going to be like Superman with this knee. You know, I remember having those conversations with myself in my dorm room. And what helped me through that process is my best friend to this day, my college roommate, he had tore his ACL about a month and a half before ours. So we took it as a challenge. When we would go to sports uh, sports med every day, we competed against each other. We competed. We got on that bio, Biomex machine, whatever it was, where it would basically make you throw up because you have to squeeze your quad so much and pull your hamstring. And we just looked at each other eye to eye and just compete and go at it and say, you know what, we're better than these knee injuries. Um, so that was that was a big thing. Is that the, the first time where you start to get into the mind body connection? Is that like absolutely? It's the first time I really realized it because if you go back and paint the picture of my life, I did I did it my whole life. It was the first time that I, it was tangible because I read about it, and I read about athletes who did these amazing feats in spite of having an arm or or leg, you know. And uh, that's when I really dove into sports performance and. And that's what I decided to, to major in psychology. And the deal about the Lafayette and the Patriot League is you, you're not allowed to redshirt because of injury. If you do, if you get injured, you redshirt by taking a double major <laughs> or a science major. And so that's when I did a BSc in psychology and really dug in and took a little, a lot of psychopharmacology and neural, neuroscience and that type of thing and learned uh, physiologically how your mind works and then incorporate that with the psychology part and put the two together and say there is a massive place in here and you know obviously that's a long time ago and sports performance wasn't looked at wasn't quite looked at as it was here today and I said the two there's definitely a place for two amazing so what was your college career like just give us an idea of uh athletically how things worked out for you the difficult thing became for me was that after the knee injury, I was I came into college being a scorer, defender, in that order. Um, the rest of my college career, I became a defender who could score. And I took pride in took pride in putting the handcuffs on the best player on the other team. Whether he was a six foot ten guy or a five foot eleven guy who was so quick no one could guard. My college coach put me on the best player no matter who we played. And that's when the physical toughness of getting into fights growing up allowed me to be able to say, you know what, Donald Foyle, you're going to get the ball in the post, but I'm going to front you, and you're going to feel like this is going to be like a hornet's nest on you. And that's how I transitioned. I realized, and then at that, in some point in your career, you realize you're not going to be an NBA basketball player. I'm, you're I'm, gonna be I'm smiling. I'm smiling because it's like Patriot League basketball. Uh, for those that don't know, Donald Foyle is a, is a seven-footer uh, who went to Colgate and <laughs> – Donald also uh, went to my grad program and studied sports psychology, and wow. so I'm just I'm just laughing uh, 
uh, Donald probably played in the NBA, what, 10, 12 years, made a, made, made a bunch of money uh, and, uh, you know, had a successful career. And Donald's also one of the brightest athletes that I've ever interacted with. He's just a, he's got a fascinating story. You might be in, I might have to reach out to him to be a guest on, on this podcast sometime, but it's just funny that you brought him up and I'm envisioning you tell everybody how tall you are. Um, on my tallest day, six foot two. Right. So we're, we're going to say, you know, without shoes on for the average Joe, he's probably six <laughs> foot and maybe a half or maybe six one or whatever. Right. Um, but you know, so here's here's a six foot two guy defending a seven footer, and uh, it just I think painting that picture for people is important. So you became in a lot of ways the do whatever it takes guy, kind of like back when you were playing varsity as a freshman in high school, where it's like you know let me carve out a role and and just be tough and just compete and and help the team win. Uh, what were you like as a senior uh, as you had progressed? Well, captain, you know, co-captain as a senior, you know, academically I was on the president's. Silver Award list at, at Lafayette. You know, I just became, uh, to me, I, I became a man more than anything else, you know, and learned to take responsibility for others. And most get back from the time I was six years old playing in little bitty leagues. Every coach I coached, that coached me, told me I was going to be a coach. And I took that as a slight because they were just saying I'm a know-it-all or they're saying that, you know, I'm not good enough. But by my senior year, I really realized that, man, I think I like this coaching thing, and I'm and I've never been in basketball for the money anyway, you know. Because a lot of people say well, coaches don't make money, blah blah blah. And you go to school like Lafayette, and everyone's leaving and going to work at Arthur Anderson and Deloitte and Tuge in this engineering place, and everyone talking about how much money they're going to make and blah 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 blah. And I, I I was like, you know what? I'm going to make sure that people I coach make a lot of money because I'm going to put everything that I've learned in my life about competing as an athlete, as a student, I'm going to pour into the guys who play for me and make sure that they're able to take care of their families for the rest of their lives, doing the thing that they love the most. Were you always a, a leader? Were you always a captain? Uh, yeah, every, almost, I can't think of a team with a baseball, you know, soccer, football, basketball, that at some point I wasn't named a captain. Do you think leaders are made or born? That's a great question. I think there's there there are people who are born with an inherent ability to lead other people um, and a desire to lead other people. I also think that you can teach people who aren't that who don't know that they have that in their belly. Um, you can put them in position to test their leadership and to make them become a better leader or one of the leaders. They may not become the ultimate leader because it's just not their personal makeup to talk a lot in front of people or their makeup to. Uh, want the obligation or responsibility, you said obligation earlier, to make a decision that whether if it goes bad, that they're okay with taking responsibility for that. They're not, I don't think there are a lot of people who, 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 who are born to learn to embrace that. Because in sports, as you know, a lot of times we fail more than we succeed. And it takes a, a real leader to me to take responsibility for your failures, not just your, your victories. You, you've been around a lot of successful players. Is there one that comes to mind that you you saw shift and became more of a leader um, and uh, grew in that aspect that maybe initially you weren't sure that person had the qualities inherently or innately uh, to be a leader? 1,000%, and he's now an NBA All-Star, Isaiah Thomas. When he came to me at South Kent, because I coached him in um, prep school also, 
as 11th grade, I remember watching him as a 10th grader at Curtis High School in Tacoma, and he was the stuff. But he couldn't lead a pack of ants to a picnic, you know, because it was about me scoring, me, me, because he was, that's what he was told, that's what he was allowed to do. You know, I, I don't think most really good players and people are going to do what you allow them to do. And nothing against the people around him at that point, but the best thing for him was to do was to leave Seattle and get away and be on his own and be force-fed that this is a team game. You're great, but we need you with your ability because your desire to compete and win has is, 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 is always been off the charts for him. But to know how to do that outside of AAU and All-Star games, it was the first time that he played with a team full of other great players. So he, I had to put him in a position where he had to carve out a niche and not just because you're the best, that, man, I would grab him and have talks with him. And Isaiah, you have to be verbal. And you have to be verbal in the way that you get people to come along with you, not verbal in the way that they respect you because how hard you play. But if you're demeaning guys and jumping on them every play, sometimes guys eat a little bit of sugar you know, to get the best out of him. And to his credit, man, the kid always wanted to be a great player. So he would do whatever you said they needed to do to become, to become great. And then we came to college. When he came in as a freshman at Washington, before I got here, the coaches would say he walked in here and he also became a man because school was a secondary thing for him as well before he came to prep school. He became a really good student. And when he came here, he didn't want to, you know, all we required the best student athletes to have a tutor. He didn't want to do tutoring because he learned how to do it on himself and make himself a better student and really work hard and be a leader. But just and you see where he is now, his level of compete is also mixed with his level of teaching guys to compete and also leading them in a very positive way. And I just want you to dive a little deeper into someone like this, because to me, he his story, for those that don't know, Isaiah's 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, I mean... On his best day. Yeah, like... So, like, I mean, he's a small dude. He was... Had a prolific career in college. But then NBA comes calling. I think, was he the last pick of the draft? I mean, he... He, yep. was, he left his junior year being that small as the last pick of the draft. And it was the best thing that ever happened to him. Right? So, like, talk about chip on his shoulder. He already probably has a Napoleon complex, uh, which I can relate to. Um, yep. And... But now he's the last pick and he goes to Sacramento and, you know, uh, he has some success there, but um, they they traded him. Correct. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and you know what? What was interesting was he also learned to lead by his work ethic. Remember the first week there, they someone from their front office called and said, hey, man, Isaiah has to slow down. He, he's making our veterans look bad. Well, like we talking about, they said every water break they do sprints to get water. Sprints back on the court. He's the hardest working guy here, and we called Isaiah and said, "Keep up what you're doing," because we knew by coaching him every day that he has way more tiger in his heart than almost anybody in that league, and that he was better than the guys he was going to play with. And he had that deal too that he knew he was better. And he was going to. He had the same sort of deal. With me. You tell me no, it's go. I'm going to prove you wrong. All right. So, chip on the shoulder, underdog. You could relate to that. Work ethic, similar, you could relate to that. But we've often talked about, all right, well, that's great. What happens when the lights are on? Uh, mm-hmm. Can you give us a glimpse into his mindset when he's performing? Uh, <laughs> and, and like, what is, how does he look at, you know, those 40 minutes in college or, 
probably play less in, in the NBA, but 48 minutes in the NBA, like what would he do to prepare himself, to get himself ready to perform on the court? Right. Well, the, the big deal is like if you look now at NBA, he's either second. He might be first now since he had 29 in the fourth quarter the other day. He's the second, second leading scorer in the fourth quarter in the NBA. So that's his time. In the games, it's his time. But his whole deal was that he, in terms of practice versus performance, is that practice he wanted to learn and work hard and all that stuff. But he would turn a lot of practices into performance. All of a sudden, it became a game. If someone made a basket and they said something to him in practice, we look at the coach and say, uh-oh, it's about to happen. He would turn that thing into a game where everyone has to bring their game to a different level. He never took practice as practice. He took practice like a game. Um, and everything is personal, you know. And then if you look at his career, he, all he did was make big shots in his career, big plays. Uh, I remember we are playing Marquette to go to the Sweet 16, and Darius Odom, I think that's his name for Marquette, he was killing us. Isaiah's your best scorer. Usually you don't want college to get fouled. He came in the house and said, let me guard him. He did nothing the rest of the game. The other guy did nothing the rest of the game. Now, most people say, man, we get Isaiah scoring, scoring, scoring. He took it on himself. Let me guard him. He went from a freshman who would not guard anybody to wanting to guard the best player. We're at Washington State. Late in the game, it's a tight game, a rivalry game, and they're really good. They got Clay Thompson and all those guys. Isaiah has to pee really badly. So we call the timeouts. He can go pee to the locker room. He says, no, I'm not coming out of this game. And we literally put towels in his pants and stood around him. He peed on the bench. He said, I'm not coming out. I'm not going to the locker room. I'm not missing a second of this game. Like, that's the performance guy is. You know, and now the Gus Johnson call is most famous. Against Arizona, you know, we're down We're down one. Last possession. We're about to call a timeout. He gets the ball in the inbounds, waves off. Coach says, I got this. And goes out there, makes the right play, hits a jump shot, we win the game. You know, win the Pac-12 championship. So he's just a guy that's mind over matter. And when it became, like, practice is about learning your craft, as you know, and becoming, perfecting your craft, which is really good at that. But there, there were times and practices every day where when it came time to scrimmage or time to play a one-on-one drill or a three-on-three drill, it was the end of the game in his mind. And he would not lose any of those. I love that. It's it's really my we've we've had many conversations about this. It's we need to put athletes in those positions more often so that they can use the competitive muscle. And don't get me wrong, I'm all about skill development and, you know, ball handling, shooting, you know, reps and deliberate reps and those things, but we do miss just what are you going to do when it's me versus you? Exactly. What's your belief in you? versus versus the other guy across from you and you know he he built that muscle so that yeah there's no reason for him to be afraid of having the ball in his hand despite the fact that he's five foot eight and right you know i'm sure a lot of people say he shouldn't be where he's at and uh it, he's a he's such an interesting guy we could talk all about him but i want to talk about more about you so mm-hmm. so you graduate from college and you say you have people in your ear your whole life saying hey you can really coach um do you go right into coaching, or what's the step after college? Uh, well, I, I took my swing at going overseas, and I hurt my knee again. At that point, I came back, and I was a student. <laughs> I was a, not a student teacher, a teacher's assistant at a middle school in um, Gaithersburg, Maryland. And at that point, I started thinking about the coaching piece. And I contacted people, and I wanted to go back to school um, 
to learn more about psychology and coaching. Like, I just don't want to jump into coaching. I want to learn the pedagogy of coaching, the theory of coaching, and also mix that in with some sports psychology. So I ended up going up to Canada to University of Victoria because they had the National Coaching Institute there. And I enrolled in coaching studies and with the emphasis on sports psychology. And I was really, truly blessed. My first job ever as a grad student in coaching was the guy there. He passed away now, Guy Vitri. He was considered a master coach. He'd been a national team coach. And the National Coaching Institute, when coaches came out there for the year to learn to coach, they coached under him. And so I learned to coach under him and really learned the theory of coaching as well as you know, I'm a believer there is theory with this, game, this, with this game. There is pedagogy. But at the end of the day, you have to have a feel for what to do when in a game. And I learned a lot of that from him. I remember the very first scrimmage with him. We bought the scrimmage this team. I think it was Nanaimo Community College. We bought the scrimmage him. And I'm like, I turn around, he's sitting in the stands. His name is Guy Veach. I said, come on, Veach, game about to start. He said, no, no, no. He pointed at me and said, you got it. I'm like, what? He said, you got it. You want to learn how to coach? You're going to learn how to coach today. And that was it. He threw, my, he threw me right in the fire and said, you're going to learn how to coach today. He said, I know you know your X's and O's. He said, but can you manage the game? I want to watch you manage the game, and then I'm going to evaluate you and break you down and tell you what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, and learn how to coach. And when he did that, it was almost like he knew what was in my belly that I didn't know as a coach. When he did that, man, I became a dog after the red piece of meat. All I want to do is coach more, coach more, coach more, coach more. Learn everything about coaching. Learn everything about teaching. Uh, and, and that's how I got my start. Amazing. So you moved from there, and, and now you're, you're, you're coaching. You believe you can do it. You, you, you have a good sense of it. Take me through your journey, your coaching journey. Well, then uh, the prep school I went to, actually, uh, one of my friends on the team when I played there, he was the coach. And we're talking on the phone one day about something. He goes, hey, man you're coaching now I think you should come back here I'm leaving and coach here you know and I was like man I don't know they're not committed to basketball there you know that type of stuff but it was near home and it was an opportunity to become a head coach and I had one conversation with the headmaster it's crazy the people who die in my life he's now dead now and I actually ended up bringing him along with me to South Kent to be the college director of college uh, counseling the headmaster there Ken Brown had a conversation with him and he wanted to be good in sports he wanted to be good in basketball in particular and that athletic director there wanted to be good in basketball. And I just felt my local connections to the Maryland, D.C. area that immediately we would get really good players and have an opportunity to coach like a college program where guys had a college schedule in terms of their classes, um, in terms of being able to get in the gym and work on their games and stuff. And that was my, my first head coaching job, and we did a really good job there. And I also, leadership. I became the, the first day I was the counselor in the middle school you know, and I taught in the classroom, which I love teaching, you know, and I taught AP um, psychology and then African-American history. And so I was in the classroom, not just with the guys I coached, but the other kids there. And, then, and that brings buy-in, by the way, in your community that, man, this guy's all in with all of us, not just that basketball program. And I wanted that to be a case. By the time I left there, I'd become the dean of students, you know, which is basically third in charge of the school, um, of the whole school as well as the basketball coach. And then from there, my college coach visited South Kent. They were recruiting a, a guy. Well, I'll skip back. I also found out what, I had a frustration there that at co-ed schools, I found out at, for high school, at the root of every issue you had with your team, it was about your guys and a girl. You know, and they were all, at the root of everything, any conflicts with your guys and your team had something to do with a girl off the court. And so 
I want to be in a place where they could just focus on school and basketball. And so when South Kent came open, my college coach called me and goes, hey, man, I think it's a great situation up there, but you're not going to want to do it. Because it means that they have wooden backboards as a hockey school, basketball is nothing there, blah, 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 blah. And he said, I think a lot of college assistant coaches are trying to get that job. But he said, I think it's tailor-made for you. It's all boys, and they want to be good, and they want the guys to be good in school too. And so long and short, I go up there, I visit the place, and I remember my wife being with me saying, man, you're not going to take this job, are you? Because we went to the game, there was like six people in the gym watching. And and I just remember the same my grandmother said to me one time. She said, dry wood burns the best. And you know, when it's wet, it's not going to catch fire. There's not much there, it's dry as can be. Dry wood burns the best. And the headmaster had such a vision for what he wanted. He wanted to do it the right way. And I said to her, we're absolutely taking this job. And they did end up doing a 60 Minutes piece on us, hmm. you know, because I think they thought it was a rogue school situation going into it for 60 Minutes. And they found out that really was about our guys go to class and sit in the front row. They're going to wear their shirt and tie. They're going to learn the, the prologue of Canterbury Tales before everyone in schools because that's the, the rite of passage there. You have to learn the prologue of Canterbury Tales within the first three months of school and stand up and say it. And I said, no, our guys are going to learn the first two weeks. And so we practiced it, practiced it, practiced it, and I still know it. When, when this April shower show to drought of March appeared to the road, I can say it myself still, you know, and then they're going to be committed to being really good basketball players. And in that first year, we went from not having a prep basketball program to being ranked fourth in the country within the first month of the season because it was a commitment to being tough, a commitment to being a student, and a commitment to being a pers- person in the community. Um, and that, that and from there, you know, the story goes on. Five years of success there, went to Nike, Ran their grassroots basketball program for them, success there, and then became a college assistant. What was Nike like for you? Because you're now taking the the coaching hat off, and a lot of your story involves leaving the door open for others to come in and, and sleep at the apartment whenever they're able. And I just hear your story and this desire to be tough, but also to have that arm around uh, and the boot in the butt and the on the arm around the shoulder. Um, what was that like being at Nike where I'm sure it was exciting. It was different. It was unique, but, um, you're not coaching. Yeah. Well, it was coaching in a different sense because I was in charge of evaluating, you know, all the best young talent internationally and in the world. And I would go and when I would go and see these kids, I'd actually work them out and be on the court and see what they were made of inside. Cause you know, Nike's elite, they want the best of the best. And then we did ran international events, and I was actually on the court coaching. And to this day, Coach Raveling said to me there, he goes, man, that's why we lost you, because you were still coaching. You weren't all the way not coaching. Um, but Nike was an unbelievable experience for me in the sense that it was a lot like a Lafayette experience in the sense that people don't get it. And Nike, they see these guys walking around looking cool at these events and stuff. Nike only hires the best and the smartest people in the world. And I remember going to my first meeting cross-departmental meeting at Nike, and I called my college coach and said, thank you so much, because if I didn't go to Lafayette, I wouldn't understand a word or a thing they're talking about in this meeting. And and what Nike does the best, I think, they don't teach you your job. They throw you in the water and say, you're going to sink or swim and figure this out. And so it's sharpened that, that part of my muscle, my competitive muscle, that I'm not going to fail. And in fact, I'm going to succeed at this thing and exceed expectations at this thing. So I had to exercise my mental muscle and learn to succeed in a different way at Nike that may have not have gotten tapped into if I had remained coaching. So that was that was the beauty of it for me. I think Nike actually made me a better coach. So now you're at University of Washington. Um, 
you obviously have a special player that's at University of Washington now. Uh, for those that don't know, University of Washington has Markel Fultz, who uh, I'm familiar with because he, he grew up, you know, in the D.C. area. Um, and I think the world is just starting to get to know him a little bit. Um, but you've seen a lot of guys come through University of Washington and in other college coaching experiences that you've had. I'm just curious to get your perspective on what makes a great basketball great, great basketball <laughs> player great. You know what's interesting? Because as you say it, then we talked about Isaiah. You know, I, I think you're drawn to as a coach, to what you are. Mm. And Markel is the classic underdog. He's no longer the underdog, but no one was recruiting him. You know, when he was in tenth grade, playing on JV basketball. And I remember seeing him play. I said, "Man, something about this kid that he has some innate things as a player and as a person um, that can make him a great player if he grows." And he grew and. The story goes on and on. We've talked about it. But I think, to me, what makes the the best the best is that they don't believe the hype. They don't believe they're the best. They want to be the best, but they're not listening to all the people around them saying, man, you don't have to get better. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. They look at themselves like, no, if I don't get better, I won't be the greatest. I'll be good. And, and I, but, but complacency is going to set in. You know, and these guys... To me, and the ones I've been around, I worked at Nike and was back around LeBron James and Kobe Bryant and those guys, and just listen to them talk. And at the end of the day, they have a fear of not being the best. And they're going to do everything they can, whether it's from a sports performance standpoint, mentally, to a physical standpoint, in the weight room, to hours on the court, that they're not going to let the guy next to them, in terms of level of competing in all those areas, be better than them. They're just not going to do it. And I think that's the common denominator. They just have this desire to, I'm going to use a negative here, to not not be the best. <laughs> you know what I mean? They want to be the best, and they're going to do whatever it takes to be the best. Yeah, but the other thing that I think you're hitting on with all those guys, they were never complacent. And because they were never complacent, the moment they step on that floor, they know they're the shit. Like, they, they, I, Isaiah Thomas, who I don't know, but when I watch Isaiah Thomas play, he shouldn't be able to do the things that he's doing. He shouldn't be able to drop right. 50 in the NBA. I'm sorry, man. Like, you're, you're still a five foot eight dude. Like, um, and, but I don't think Isaiah ever, I would imagine he never doubted that he belonged. Like, when he's the 60th pick of the draft, I don't think he's sitting there being like, you know, I, oh man, I wasn't a lottery pick. Like, did these guys not watch my tape? I'm sure he's saying. I remember our text message. Yeah, tell me about it. Let's get it. That's all it was, both of him. Let's get it. I have a text message from the other day when he scored 52. And I just said to him, I said, hey man, so, so that's how you're doing it now? That's what you're doing those guys in the NBA? He just texted me back and said, let's get it. And so it's, I've never arrived, but there is this belief in themselves that. It doesn't matter what is going to happen outside of them, what the environment is, what the coach is, what the teammates are. They have this utter belief in themselves because, look, he goes to Sacramento and, you know, nothing against Sacramento, but they have not been successful for a long, long time. And right. it would have been easy for him to say, you know, uh, it's them, right? Uh -huh. And so, like, to me, I think – when you think about mindset and mental toughness, it's the ability to say, I'm going to prepare my butt off and humble myself and never be complacent and not listen to any of the noise. 
like Tim Duncan's uh, the um, when they just raised his his jersey the rafters in San Antonio and that ceremony for him. All Pop kept saying is he never, you know, he was never full of himself. Uh, right. Tim Tim was never full of himself. But when Tim stepped on the floor. Uh, Tim Tim knew he was a seven footer with better feet and hands than anybody else that he was going against. And Tim knew when he shot that bank shot, uh, you know that that was going in. It wasn't like Tim was, oh, I'm not that good. It's like no, I'm I'm a monster. And I think Isaiah like to score fifty points in a game. And we could talk about Seattle swag all day, which I'm sure you're aware of. But a lot of Seattle guys have it. Uh, I think of a Nate Robinson or a Jamal Crawford, uh, Brandon Roy before he got hurt. A lot of the Seattle guys, like when they step on the floor, there is just this this ridiculous belief. And in some ways, to your point, an underdog because Seattle's kind of an underdog city in in uh-huh. in in the sense of like big New York, uh, Chicago, well, L.A. cities. So um, really, and I'd be remiss I'd be remiss if I didn't say, and all those great ones are willing to do what the other guys won't do. And like I said, remember when I, as a student at Lafayette, I don't care if I had to stay up to 3, 4 in the morning every night, I would do it. To be, not just, not to make it, but to be better than the person next to me. And that's what they do. I mean, Isaiah, to this day, will sometimes in the summer, text you and say, what are you doing at 6 a.m. tomorrow? I'm going to get workout in. You know, in the summer. When he first gets home. You know, a lot of those NBA guys take months off because this never wants you to catch him. You know? And he's spending the whole time, and I know he, he won't say names, but I know he sits in his apartment, in his house, with his wife, and he's just looking at names in the NBA. Said, okay, I can't wait to line up against him. And the thing is, he's different, too. He's going to tell you about it the whole time he's playing against you. Kobe was that way, too. And I just remember when, the, um, when I was at South Kent, when I had Darrell Wright who played for me at South Kent, when he was with the Miami Heat, when Christmas, I took my team down to Miami to train during our Christmas break. And Kobe was there to play with the Lakers, and I had Kobe come talk to our team. And I never forget what he said, and it's really important to for players when your training says, because we're talking about the crazy shots he makes in games. He said, I never, ever shoot a shot that I haven't practiced. So when you see these difficult, crazy-looking shots I take, I practiced them a thousand times. You know, and that's Isaiah. Isaiah, all those finishes you see and all that, that movie does where he fake spins and comes back left, he's been doing that since he was five years old. He never does something he's never practiced. Yeah, I just heard David Fisdale, who's the head coach at, at Memphis. Uh, really good, by the way. Who's, I've been around him. He's really good. Oh, man. He, long overdue to become a head coach and yeah. uh, just a high-energy guy who I've, I've spent some time with, and he always impressed me, and he really worked his way up to where he is today. But he was talking about when uh, Russ Westbrook and, and Michael Beasley were coming out um, and they were out in Las Vegas for, uh, I guess, summer league or, or something along those lines. And, you know, I can remember NBA people saying when Bees was coming, when Beasley was coming out, that he was the best prospect they'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not, the best prospect they'd ever seen. And Russ Westbrook has kind of a similar story in some ways to Markel. Um, you know, in sort of an underdog story and, you know, was backing up Darren Collison at UCLA. and I, I recruited Westbrook to South Kent because going into the spring, he didn't have any big high major offers. So I was recruiting him because his high school coach at, at Losinger was the same coach that gave me Darrell Wright at South Kent. Hmm. And so he was telling me about Westbrook all year, and I was starting recruiting him. And I just remember him saying, I think you could get Westbrook's going to come. He has to go to one more. He's going to go to Boo Williams, AU. And he went to Boo Williams, and he just took off. 
So I was recruiting Westbrook. It's amazing. The end of the story is Fisdale saying um, they were trying to get Beasley to come for a workout, and they're calling bees and they're calling bees, and they can't get him, so they have to go to his hotel room and bring bees to work out. And they get to the gym, and Russ Westbrook is already full sweat and looks over at bees and, and bees is like, Russ, what are you doing? He's like, I'm done with my workout already. It's over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and Fisdale's point was basically like, Russ has been like, because they were asking him, are they, is he surprised at how Russ is doing this year? He's like, this is the way this guy has been since he was a rookie. Like, that's how he just practices, is that level of frenetic pace and energy and competitive spirit. Um, so I think that's such a fascinating uh, story as it relates back to Isaiah and how he's looking at things. And uh, these are guys, by the way, I say Isaiah is five foot eight, but Isaiah is a freak athlete at five foot eight. Uh, yeah. You know, Russ has every reason to become complacent based on his his speed, strength, athleticism, scoring. Uh, and if those guys aren't, then, then that's telling you something. Um, I want to... I want to do something fun with you, and, and then we'll finish up because I know we've been talking for a while, and I know we could talk for another two hours. Um, no question. So I, I want to do this thing that I call preferences, where I get your opinion on these preferences. They're supposed to be quick hitters, and I just want to get your perspective, and you can either take it as your perspective as an athlete or your perspective as a coach. Um, but I want to start by, do you prefer preparing or performing? Um, as, a, as a coach, preparing, athlete, performing. Do you prefer coaching yes sir players or why players? I prefer the why. Why? Yes sir, yes sir, because that means they have, they want to learn at a deeper level, and that I think those players have the ability to read and react quicker in a game because they understand why they why you do this versus just do this. Do you prefer a system or autonomy? I like a like a I like a mix. You have to have a system so you have a foundation to go back to. But you have to give your players scope to take risks and chances because in the, the Isaiah Thomas big shots in the games don't happen if, if they didn't have autonomy other parts of the game. See, I love to think about this as like if you have a great system, it creates autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think the best systems create autonomy within a system. Exactly. Um, so it's kind of a loaded question, but that's why this is fun. Um, do you prefer coaching the most valuable player or the most improved player? Uh, number two. Those are the guys I've had. You know, the most improved player keeps improving. Prefer resume or eulogy? Eulogy. Why? At the end of the day, it matters what they say about you. What you did. Not what you did in terms of your impact. Eulogies, the best eulogies I ever, I mean, I've seen a lot of them. Uh, the best eulogies uh, tell you what you did for others. Mm. Resumes describe what you do for yourself. Love that. Uh, prefer this generation, uh, or, or actually, I, should, I would say this because I see you lighting up. I'm going <laughs> to give you three options. Do you prefer okay. this generation of kids? Do you prefer your generation, or do you prefer your parents' generation? Um, as a as a performer, I prefer watching my parents' generation in terms of the performers out there. Uh, it was just ridiculous. In terms of kids, I, I, I like this generation because they're a challenge, and a good challenge in many ways, because this social media and stuff has allowed these kids to have a voice. You know, and a lot of times we grew up being coached where it was top down. Now, 
you, you as a good coach, you have to. It, it's it's back and forth. There's a synergy. There's uh, synchronicity between player and coach in terms of talking and understanding. I like this generation. Positive feedback or negative feedback? Positive. Culture or talent? Culture. Why? Um, when you have great culture, you can overcome great talent. Hmm. Um, great culture because again, you have a foundation, and guys are leaning on what they've been taught, their pillars, the core values. You know, talent. You can be talented, but you don't have core values to go back and lean on when things are tough. So I'm I'm big with culture. Do you prefer momentum or the moment? Um, whew, during the course of the game, momentum is great. But I think the moment is, as an athlete is what you live for. As a coach is what you live for. When that game is tied and there's two seconds left and it's mano y mano, I love the moment. Prefer to be liked or respected? Respected. A lot of really good people are liked, but you can't get people to perform. People perform better for you and they respect you. Risk taker or rule follower? Risk taker. Within the, within the rules. <laughs> uh as a player, would you have preferred to be a starter on a losing team or a towel waiver on a winning team? Towel waiver on a winning team. I'm all about the team. Because at some point, you know, that towel waiver, there's a lot of guys who are towel waivers who are really successful businessmen now hmm. because they understand team. Balance or specific obsession? <sighs> well, th- to be honest, in college sports, men's basketball and football particularly, there's no such thing as balance. There's there's time management and energy management. You know, you and I have talked about that. Um, but what was the second part? Sorry. Specific obsession. You got to have a specific obsession. I mean, you, to me, you can't be the jack of all trades, master of none. When you're obsessed with it, you're going to chase it. Fear of failure or fearlessness? Fear of failure. Why? Yeah. Because I, I, it, it feels awful. You know, I, I want to have where I'm competing, and at the end of it, you feel great. You know, failure is not a fun place to be, but it's a, good, it's a place that teaches you when you do fail. But there's a lot of fearless people who are so fearless, they'll walk in front of a bus and be dead. You know, that's not smart. You know, the fear of failure will get you to do the right things so you don't fail. And that speaks to your story earlier about seeing the wrong people doing the wrong things in your neighborhood and saying they taught you just as much as the people doing the right thing. So you're like, I'm not going that direction. Right. So interesting. Uh, last one, disassociate from pressure or embrace it? Embrace it. You know, I, I put a tweet out the other day that in order for a nice, precious piece of glass to be made, it's made by putting water and sand in a kiln under extreme pressure. If there's no pressure, there's no super performance. You can perform well without pressure but if you haven't practiced under pressure if you haven't competed under pressure your performances to me your ultimate performances will not be, be elite performances they'll be good you'll look back and say man I did really good I did really good but when you put under extreme pressure and learn how to operate in that pressure and to embrace it and thrive in it and take and flip that pressure and to make it positive for you the, the sky's the limit awesome so let's end there uh, coach I know we went for a long time here Uh, I really appreciate it. You have this ability to bring in knowledge and education from outside worlds, outside of basketball, but also uh, understand the simplicity of basketball. I was with a coach the other day and he's like, our game's really not that complicated. Uh, He's like, it's really simple. Um, But I think your gift is the ability to bring in complex 
human being challenges, which human beings aren't that simple. We are complex. Mm-hmm. And mixing that with a game that's supposed to be simple but becomes very complicated when you have the human element. So right. uh, I truly appreciate learning from you and having conversations and your willingness to share stories. Some of the stories you told today were just were made me smile, made me laugh, and, and were incredible. And uh, I'm sure we'll do this again real soon. Maybe not Absolutely. over the podcast, but I I know you guys are in the thick of it. So I really appreciate you taking time to to chat. And uh, I know you got a big week ahead, so. I'm wishing you all the best, and, and I'll be watching. Thanks, Brian. Next goal is to see if we can take down this 800-pound gorilla, 800 gorilla called Oregon on Wednesday. All right, sounds good, Coach. Thanks a lot, and, and we'll talk soon. All right, take care. All right, bye. Thanks again to Coach for coming on the Beyond the Surface podcast. I just love Coach's stories, his enthusiasm, his energy, uh, the story about Isaiah Thomas doing whatever it takes and, and urinating on the bench so that he didn't have to miss any time was an epic story that I'll certainly remember. And I also loved his story about his family and uh, his grandma and his mom and their personality and his grandma's desire to learn even when she's grown and his mom and her willingness to open up her house to strangers and also his uncle and the influence his uncle had, whether it was cutting his hair (laughs) or uh, dealing with his chest being on fire and still being calm even in Uh, the middle of a snowstorm. So uh, thanks to Coach Chills for sharing all of his insight. Uh, If you want to follow Coach Chills, you can certainly do that on Twitter. Uh, His handle is at Coach Chills. Uh, That's C-H-I-L-L-S. He's he's a great follow on there. He's always posting interesting stories, like he said today, with the glass uh, and uh, making things happen. And uh, you can also follow University of Washington men's basketball. They've got a big game on Wednesday against Oregon, as Coach talked about. So uh, if you want to follow them, feel free to do that. And once again, thanks to Coach for coming on Beyond the Surface.